Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. Today's message is Revelation 1, verse 1 through 8, and I'm calling it Pulling Back the Curtain. Pulling Back the Curtain. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray as a church that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit. As we pray over our time together, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher. You would convict us. You would encourage us. You would strengthen us as your people to be everything that you want us to be. We want to glorify you. So as we read your word today, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would share with us the things that we need to see and things we need to hear so that we can live righteously and rightly in the world that we're in. So I thank you for your word. Use it today for your glory in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Well, I don't have to tell you this, but the book of Revelation is both widely known and I would say widely misunderstood. The polls that I've read when people are asked from church, those that attend church, what would you like to hear more from, from the pulpit? What would you like to hear taught? And unanimously, the majority always says, I want to hear more about the end times, specifically from the book of Revelation. And this is just the polls that I've read. In addition to that, when you ask pastors, what do you have the hardest time teaching? It's going to be the book of Revelation. So you can see kind of the conundrum or the problem that we have here. But I was always curious about the book of Revelation when I was a young person, when I didn't know the Lord, when I would walk by and see a Bible conveniently placed somewhere, place that I was, I would always know the book of Revelation was in the back of the Bible. And it was that scary book that talked about harlots and beasts and dragons and all kinds of other things. I wasn't really sure what was in there, but it was all kinds of crazy um, mythological things that I didn't know much about, but I was a little frightened and a little curious about the book of Revelation. And I think even as a Christian, I think there is sort of this feeling, maybe not quite the same, but there is this sort of sense that at first glance, we cannot understand it. I think even at second or third or fifth glance, we still, there's this feeling like we can't understand it. But I want to tell you today, you can understand it. We can understand the Bible. The Bible was penned by people, but it was inspired through the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that leads the church, the same Holy Spirit that lives in those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's admit, there are some mysterious things going on. We're talking about the Antichrist, the mark of the beast. We're talking about um, the end of the world. We're talking about the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth, the unfolding events that transpire between the first and the second coming of Christ. And there's a lot of other things, the tribulation period, the rapture. When does all of this happen? And I think that we just have to admit there are some mysterious things, and we all have certain beliefs that are based on these 22 chapters. You may not know it, and I think there are times where we don't realize that we have certain beliefs that predispose our hearing to things that are going on or being said, especially in difficult times. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that being in a strange and difficult and unfamiliar time that we've been in for 2020, it has 
opened up our ears to things that maybe we otherwise wouldn't be listening to. Okay, who's admitting it? (laughs) Videos that go viral, preachers that all of a sudden in a vacuum have become popular and nobody ever heard of them before because they found their niche. And usually that niche is fear. Usually that niche is fear. And that's what sells. And it's a preoccupation with the mysterious. And what we do is we take the mysterious and we make it known in the generation that we're in because it plays on the fear and especially the fear of the unknown. Nobody knows what's going on. Well, this has got to be the end times and this has got to be the unfolding of revelation. You know every generation has actually thought this. Every generation had their version of who the Antichrist was. Every generation thought that Jesus was coming back, and so they had all kinds of people that would arise and teach these things. Now, Jesus is coming back, and I think what happens when people have blown it, and they thought that this was the Antichrist, and they thought that Jesus was going to return in this generation, and it didn't happen, what happens in believers' hearts sometimes is we sort of cast off the idea that just Jesus is going to return. And so we go to the polar opposite. All of a sudden, it's like, hey, we're just gonna, we're gonna do what the Bible says that people are gonna do in the last days. We're gonna eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. And that's what happens and transpires. The polar opposite sort of becomes true. But every generation has had this thinking, and it's usually based on the book of Revelation. There was a man named Edgar Wisenot who wrote a book in 1988 that was called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Would Be in 1988. Maybe you remember this. I was nine, so I don't remember it, honestly. But it sold 3.2 million copies. Now, this is in a day where Amazon's not a thing. You you have to understand, the internet's not selling books. How does 3.2 million copies get sold? That's like the Bible in 1988. And that's incredible. We're talking Christian bookstores, all kinds of pathways that people would have heard through word of mouth. 200,000 copies were printed and distributed to pastors in 1988 before September. Can you imagine what happened? Preachers from the pulpit were preaching 88 reasons why Jesus would return in 1988. And here's what happened. This guy, I think he worked for NASA, bright, intelligent man, comes up with all of this research why this is actually going to happen and transpire in that generation. He believed that September 11th through 13th was when Jesus was going to return. It was during the time of Rosh Hashanah, and here comes September 11th, 12th, 13th, and Jesus did not return. People made decisions based on that information about their education, about their retirement, about their schooling, about their health, about their family. They made decisions. Some people didn't have children. This was the way that it worked. And I'm just saying this to say that that's actually what happens when people have these predisposed beliefs based on something they don't quite understand. We make decisions based on that. We can't go back to that. We've got to make sure we know what the Bible is trying to say. Amen? We've got to apply the principles that we have always believed. We observe the Bible, we interpret the Bible, and we apply the Bible. And if it is mysterious, then we go back to it and we do it again and again and again. Why? Because we don't want to base our decisions off of what we think might happen. We don't want to base our decisions on some idea that is possible. We want to make sure that we study to show ourselves approved a workman unto God that does not need to be ashamed, that rightly divides the word of truth. And it's okay not to know something, but we don't want to pre-conclude on what we don't know. That's not a healthy thing. 
Well, as you know, in 1988, Jesus did not return. The rapture of the church did not occur. So he updated his, his date to October 3rd. Jesus didn't return on October 3rd. And then he wrote another book, 89 Reasons Why Jesus Would Return in 89. And he didn't come back then either. But that book still sold, playing on people. And these 22 chapters have certainly given way to all that. I think we have a preoccupation with wanting to know the future. Why? Maybe possibly because we like to know so we can prepare accordingly. I don't know what that would mean for you or for me necessarily, but if you're a scheduler, if you're a planner, you want to know what's going to happen. You want to know when it's going to happen. And you want to, the Bible gets used as sort of this cryptic tool to figure out that all of the little details and dates. But did you know that Jesus already told us you can't know? There are the signs of the times, but the dates are not given. The signs of the times, but the dates are not given. And he says, occupy until I come. And then he goes as far as telling us exactly how we are to live until he returns. We are not without the right information. We know exactly what to do. We know exactly how to live. We know exactly what we should be saying and what we should be doing until Jesus Christ returns. But what we're going to do is we're going to do our best to walk through the book of Revelation, at least the first three chapters together. And I believe it will actually be a light in the darkness of our times for us as we seek to understand it together. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 through 8. If you have your Bible, you can follow along. I'm just going to be reading in the New American Standard Version, and this is what it says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. It was a vision that he had. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits, or some translations say the sevenfold spirit, Holy Spirit, who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. These eight verses we are going to look at before we are able to understand what is being said here, I think we need to set a context. So in many ways, this will be an introduction to the book of Revelation. I will not be able to share all that you should know, but I will share maybe a lot more than is typical, at least for what we do here. I want to make sure that we capture this information because it helps us to grasp what John is saying, what Jesus is saying through John. Now, we know the apostle John wrote these words. John was one of the disciples that was in the inner circle with Jesus. We see that throughout the Gospels, Peter, James, and John. And at this point, he was the last living apostle. 
And that's interesting to note, and it really does help us to understand, even when we look at the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. We know that the apostles were scattered right around 44 AD from the city of Jerusalem, and all over they were scattered. They did come back to Jerusalem for some convening and whatnot. There were others that presided over the church at Jerusalem, but by and large, by 44 AD, the major, all the apostles had scattered. We believe, based on church history, reliable church history, it's actually well documented that the apostle John relocated to Ephesus. And there's a lot of writing about where John lived. He had a little apartment that was on the hill overlooking the temple of Artemis. Artemis, The temple of Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the world. And so you can imagine the apostle John, he's there for 30 years and he can see the sacrifices that are being made, the smoke that's coming out of this great temple to the god, little g, Artemis. He's watching this and he's there for 30 years There was a great fire in Rome in 64 AD. This was under the Emperor Nero. You've probably heard about this in one way or another. I'm certain that it's probably been shared from this pulpit in the years past, but it's a historical reality. 64 AD, there was a great fire. And we believe a lot of church history and a lot of secular history suggests that Nero and his servants were the ones that actually laid siege and the fires to Rome. But he needed a scapegoat, so he blamed Christians because he hated Christians. We obviously see the persecution. He he killed them. He he did all kinds of horrible things to Christians. So Christians got blamed for the great fires of Rome. And what happened as a result of this was great persecution came upon the church after 64 AD. When they were blamed for the fires of Rome, you can imagine every major Roman city in the Roman provinces, they were under persecution. If you were part of the church, if you were a Christian, if you were part of the way of Jesus Christ, you might lose your job, you might lose your house, you might lose your land, and you might lose your life. Those are the conditions that we're talking about at 64 AD. 67 AD, you might recall, that's when the Apostle Paul was martyred. And after that time, we know for sure There's reliable church history that says that the Apostle John was certainly in the city of Ephesus. Now, Domitian was the Roman emperor, and he had declared himself to be Lord and God. I don't know if you've ever read about this guy, but he specifically says, I am God. And when you read a lot of the Gospels, you'll see it, or even the epistles, there's this real strong language, Jesus Christ, our Lord, And the profession of faith in those days was Jesus is Lord. And that was in contrast to Caesar being Lord. Domitian required people to call him God, to call him Lord. He also required people to burn incense to him as sort of worship, paying homage to him. When you entered into the marketplace, for example, you would have to burn incense. This was something that he required. Not everybody would do it, but you would get arrested and you'd become a political prisoner. Now, it's interesting because, once again, we know that John, in his mid-90s, 93 AD, right around there, was arrested. He didn't necessarily know why, and we don't actually know why he was arrested either. There's not, well, there's not a lot of documentation as to why. We just know that he was in his mid-90s. Many believe it was for political reasons that probably he went into the marketplace and he wouldn't, you know, John, come on, he's not going to light some incense to pay homage to Domitian. He's not worshiping the emperor. He says Jesus Christ is Lord. And so that's probably the best idea of what we think probably happened. But 
Domitian found out that John, the last living apostle of Jesus Christ, was still alive. So he sends for this 90-year-old, 95-year-old man to come all the way to Rome. So they put him on a ship and they send John to Rome. And as he gets there, Domitian requires him to bow and worship him. And John, in his mid-90s, says, nope. That's my modern translation. <laughs> Not going to do it, buddy. And he's, he's furious. And so church history tells us that they prepared a large vat of boiling oil. And they basically lower him down into this boiling oil. Now, this was some, sometimes a way that they would kill someone. It was to prove a point. And that oil would just, just cause the flesh of someone to just come right off. And they pull him up out of that oil, and they're thinking they're going to pull a skeleton out. That's what they would typically do. And it was, again, there was a point to be made. And you know what they do? They pull a man up out of that boiling oil. And you might say, well, Ben, that sounds like a myth. It's actually very well documented. The reason we accept it is fact, because it's written by so many that it's overwhelming. We have Tertullian and others church historical documents that have been written. So we've accepted that was what happened. And now Domitian went from furious to frightened. And he says, get this guy out of here. So they exile him to the Isle of Patmos, which is actually where John writes the book of Revelation. Now, Patmos was like this, um, it's 24 miles from where he is. It's an island. You can go there today. It's an island of rocks. They stripped it of all its vegetation. It's a, basically a prison it's where political prisoners go and, and other criminals go as well. If you were a political prisoner, you had the right to roam the island, but you had to fend for yourself. They didn't give you water, they didn't give you food, and they didn't give you shelter. You were just dropped off on the island like Survivor. <laughs> and we know that John, based on Acts 17, was with a companion named Prochorus, was his name. Probably in his mid-90s, he had Prochorus write some of what he was having to write down. And so uh, John and Prochorus, they roam the island and they find this cave where they ended up having shelter for 18 months. And this is called the Cave of the Revelation. You can go there today. It's still there. The Cave of the Revelation. That is the place where John had his revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that was coming. Well, Domitian did die and after he died, which was 18 months later, they gave amnesty to all the political prisoners on the Isle of Patmos. So John made his way back to Ephesus, where he went back to his apartment, and it was there that John wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the Gospel of John. Now, some people debate over this, but I'm fairly convinced, so this is my opinion. You don't have to take it, but I believe the first thing that John did was write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John when he got back right out of the Isle of Patmos. He wrote Revelation first. I want you to hear this. John had the revelation of Jesus Christ before he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. That will change the way you read it. Now listen to what it says in 1st John chapter 5, verse 4, knowing that information. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. The world, the systems, the structures, not just the cosmos. He's talking about the world systems and the world structures, the powers that be. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world. John saw the end of the age. John saw the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. He saw every political structure bow to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Every king and every kingdom, he saw it bow in a great vision that Jesus Christ gave to him. And he says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith, our faith in what? 
our faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus pulled back the curtain for John, and he revealed his glory, his plan, and his return. We're calling this message pulling back the curtain because that's what revelation means. It's God pulling back the curtain, and he pulled back the curtain for John to see with an unobstructed view what was about to take place both then and the days after in the future. And we're now living in what, was, what the Bible calls the last days until the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. Jesus came. This was his first coming. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was resurrected. And it, the Bible says that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now we are living in the last days. And it talks about the day of the Lord shall come. The second coming is going, going to happen. The first and the second coming. In between that time are the last days And what is spoken about here in Revelation unfolds pieces of what is going to transpire. But make no mistake, this book is all about Jesus Christ. That's what this is about. And we we don't want to have any distraction from the person of Jesus as we read it. I want to give you four purposes for the book of Revelation. The first is to speak to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, it says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his bondservants. His bondservants are later identified by the angels, and some would argue the pastors of these churches. We're gonna read about that from chapters two and three. There are seven churches that are literal and that John is, by the vision of the Lord, writing to specifically with a very clear message. Jesus has something to say to his church. And the churches that are mentioned here are actually in chronological order as you walk the Roman roads. So the first church is Ephesus, and then it goes chronologically, or it goes on a map. You would see how they're about 30 to 40 miles apart. And so the first purpose of the book of Revelation is to speak to the seven churches of Asia Minor, but we believe that these messages are prophetic for us as well. Why? Because of who they're from. These words are from Jesus. Jesus speaks to his church, and we're going to read about this, but he commends them for what they're doing right. He corrects them for what they're doing wrong. He exhorts them and reminds them on how they are to live, and then he gives them a promise if they make the choice to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you walk in my ways, here is what you can expect. So what do we do when we read these words? We posture ourselves the same way that those who originally read them did. We want to posture ourselves to receive from the Lord and be the people that he wants us to be. Why? Because his heart for his church is still the same. His plan is still the same. And our posture to serve and to follow Jesus in our generation is still the same. And so we will find these to be prophetic letters, even though the first couple chapters were written to seven literal churches. The second purpose of Revelation is to share and to show what would take place in the future, both near and far. In verse 19, the Lord speaks to John about this vision, and it's what we're gonna look at, but I'll just share it with you now. It says, therefore, write these things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after. So there are things that are for these seven churches. It is for today, and there are things that are going to be 
after. And when you read all the way to chapter 22, what you will find is it says a new heavens and a new earth. It talks about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his second coming. And so we know there's things that are there and for them, there's an unfolding pieces that we need to understand. And then there is the end. That's what the book of Revelation looks like to share and to show what will take place in the future. You know what knowing the future will do for us? It will help us to prepare. The book of Revelation gives us no more and no less than what we need. It gives us no more and no less than what we need. This is important for us to know, to prepare our hearts to be the followers of Jesus that we need to be in our generation. The third purpose is to remind his church of who they are. I love when you read verses four to seven. And again, because we're looking for all these future elements. We're looking for who is the Antichrist and what do all the numbers mean? I mean, I think it's like 40 times the number seven is in the book of Revelation. So everybody's trying to be an omen interpreter. We're trying to figure out what all of these numbers mean and everybody has an opinion. But don't you love how in verses four to verse seven, there are things that are said to remind the church, to remind the people of God of who they are. Did you know that you need a reminder of who you are? We get one right here. What does he say? You are loved by Jesus. You're released from your sins, those that believe upon him. You're released by Jesus through his precious blood. You're a kingdom of priests. You're a holy people. And I love that Jesus reminds his church who they are. Do you think we need a reminder of who we are in our generation? Do you know what happens when you remember who you are? You stop doing things that don't make sense for who you are. We knock off the foolishness and we start being restored back to the dignity for which God created us. You and I were made in the likeness of God. This is so incredible. We were made in his image according to his likeness. When you know who you are, you behave accordingly. I'm not a fool that's messing around in foolishness. I've been saved, I've been set free, I've been washed by the blood of Jesus, I'm forgiven, I'm set apart for his holy purposes, I've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ, I am here for a reason to serve and to glorify God. And all throughout that, I get to have all kinds of great experiences with you and with family and with others, and we get to see the beauty of God, but we're living in a dark time, we're living in a difficult day, and there is hope, there is light in the darkness, because we know who we are are. You know who you are. And we need to remember who we are. The fourth, and I think the most important purpose of the book of Revelation, which we must not forget and we need to focus on and we will focus on, is to give a greater revelation of who he is. It's to give a greater revelation of who he is. The word revelation is the word, Greek word, apocalypsis. And it's where we get our word apocalypse from. It literally means to remove a veil or to remove a curtain. A modern way of saying it is to pull back a curtain. And you can imagine throughout the book of Revelation, what's happening is the curtain's getting pulled back piece by piece by piece. But it first starts when Jesus pulls back the curtain for John. The first thing that he sees is who? It's Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about it. might get a little excited right now. But it says that he sees the risen Christ, the resurrected, glorified Jesus. And what happens? He falls down on his face. His nose is in the carpet. This is a guy who walked with Jesus for three and a half years. He slept over here and Jesus was over there. He got up in the morning. They ate fish and bread together. 
I'm personally thinking that they had some jokes together, appropriate, of course. They had lots of walks and lots of talks. They saw the miracles and the teachings and the signs and the wonders. And they were fascinated with Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. They were fascinated with Jesus, who who was raised from the dead and actually visited them a handful of times before he ascended to the Father. But this is something about Jesus that they did not see. The last living apostle got to see not just Jesus risen from the dead, but saw him in a glory that he had not really seen him before. The Mount of Transfiguration was a moment, a glimpse, where they probably couldn't even see him. I'm just imagining the, the glory of the Lord blinded them, and they just thought, it would be good for us to stay here. That's what Peter said. It'd be good for us to build some tents here, right, Jesus? And I don't even think Jesus answered him. I'm not saying my kids have ever done that to me. We should do this, and I, don't, I just don't answer them. I always answer my kids. I always answer my kids. But I just have to, it's sort of like dad and mom and, and the disciples, and Jesus just redirects and moves on. He had never seen him like this. And it says he falls down as though he was dead. And then this wonderful picture, Jesus touches him. Don't, don't, don't be afraid, it is, it is me. It's like John didn't even know. It's like John didn't even realize this is the Jesus that I walked with for years. And and, and it sort of reminds me of when Jesus was in the boat fast asleep in the middle of a storm. And the disciples were in the boat with Jesus. And there were experienced fishermen in the boat. And they thought they were going to die. They were frightened we're going to die. And they wake Jesus up. Get up. What are you sleeping for, man? They wake him up. Jesus gets up. And I I don't know how to picture this. But I just, it says that Jesus got up, Jesus woke up, and he says, peace be still. And I, I sort of add the, I like the, yeah. peace be still. <laughs> I like to do that. Peace be still. And that's what happened. No, 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 no. It happened. Storm, winds, waves, boat crashing in. Disciples think they're going to die. Peace be still. And the disciples, I imagine them getting all to the end of the other end of the boat making it a little top-heavy, and they, they, they look back and they say, what manner of man is this, that even the winds and the waves obey him? See, they got comfortable with who they thought Jesus was. Oh, man. They got comfortable with who they thought Jesus was. But you know what Jesus does? And he does this through his mercy and by his grace throughout our life. He continues to show us how glorious that he is. He continues to show us how great and marvelous that he is. He continues to give us a revelation, an unveiling. He pulls back the curtain and he shows us who he really is. Ladies and gentlemen, he is not just the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He is that, but he is more than that. And the day is coming. And I pray to God that we don't yawn over this one because we are going to step past the threshold of glory and we are going to look him face to face. And I'm guaranteeing you that first appointment is not going to be one where we are going to be standing. I don't believe that anybody is going to stand in the presence of God at first sight. I think we're going to do exactly what John did. We're going to have our nose right to the ground. And Jesus will do what he did with John. He's going to touch us. And he's going to say, don't be afraid. It's me. You, you remember in 1 John where John says, we will not shrink back in his presence at his coming. 
You ever think about what he means there? See, we want to live a life, and he talks about living righteously. He talks about living holy. He talks about living upright, not in secrets, not in shadows, but living in the light of God's word. He talks about living in such a way that we won't shrink back at his coming. Why? Because he saw him. We're reading from someone that truly saw the glory of Christ. See, don't, don't just get mesmerized by the Jesus in the Gospels. What we have to do is read the book of Revelation and realize we need a revelation of Jesus Christ from Jesus Christ. We need him to pull back the curtain. Would you say that that's what our generation needs? We need the fear of the Lord. We don't need just the glory bumps, just a little feel-good experience. We need God to show up in our world in such a way that we are blown away by God. Oh my gosh, it's where this thing comes to life. And it's not just a textbook. I'm not just preaching to you words. This is a living book that refers to a living Christ that we are going to meet. We are going to see him. We are going to behold him in all of his glory. We need a revelation, a greater revelation of who he is. He's the risen king in glory coming back to take his rightful place over this earth physically, literally. He is the one who was and who is and who is to come. He's the pastor over the worldwide church of Jesus Christ. It says that he's the king over all the earth. He's the king of every king and every king, every political figure is going to know who really is in charge. And his ad campaign is going to look like this. Every eye shall see, and every ear shall hear. And just as you see the clouds billowing in in the sky, you are going to see, you, me, and everybody else, believer or not, is going to see the glory of the Lord manifest. And it says this, that every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But there will be a difference between those who confess it and have already been doing so and those that did it for the first time. To have a revelation of Jesus for us in the days in which we're living means that we've got to share about this glorious risen Christ with those that have yet to do what we have done. This is what makes us responsible. He is the alpha and the omega and we need an upgrade, ladies and gentlemen. We need an upgrade of seeing Jesus as he truly is. I believe that's the power of the book of Revelation. Don't just get preoccupied with trying to pick out dates. You know, there's so many books, tens of thousands of books written about dates. We get so preoccupied with it and we miss the point of the date. You wanna get more excited that your appointment is at 5 p.m. or 5.01 p.m. or do you wanna get more excited of who you're meeting at 5.01 p.m.? When we get so preoccupied with the date and the time, we forget who we're meeting. And we can't forget who we're meeting. In fact, I think having a greater revelation of him to see him as an awesome God will do something to us and in us that we truly need. Now, to close, I just want to share with you the power of the book of Revelation. It's not a crystal ball. It's not about the day or the hour. In fact, the Bible does actually say this, doesn't it? Acts chapter one, verse six, it says, then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom 
to Israel, and he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority. We should lock that passage in. Jesus told his disciples that it is not for you to know the day or the times. But then in verse 8, the the glorious passage that Pentecostals quote all the time, Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. In other words, I'm not going to tell you when, but I will tell you how you are to be. I will not tell you what it is, when it is going to come, but I'm going to tell you how to occupy until I come. This is what we need to remember. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know about you, but this is a time where every video and every perspective and every theology is spinning and spinning and spinning. But one theology we've got to get right. Occupy until he comes. And what does that mean? That means that you and I are convinced that it is about evangelism and discipleship. It is about sharing about Jesus. It is about showing the love of Jesus. It is about leading people to Jesus, looking like Jesus, talking about Jesus until Jesus comes. We are a Jesus church. Make no mistake about it. We need a Jesus movement. We need a Jesus revelation. The book called the Bible is about Jesus, and that's what we're here for. That's what we're here for. We thank God that there is power in this revelation. He goes on to say in, this, in these eight verses, you look here, I believe it's at verse 3, And he simply says this, blessed, that means happy, is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. You You know why I think the enemy wants to obscure this book from us? Because it is very clear that he loses. It's very clear that everyone loses but Jesus. And if you're in Christ, we're good. And you can smile no matter how dark it gets, no matter how bad it gets. You can smile because you're in Christ. I want you to think about a 95-year-old man writing the book of 1 John after having a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that we have. Those that overcome the world, our faith, we overcome the world. We're not preoccupied by the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world because of the precious blood of Jesus and his sacrifice. He has pulled us out of the system, but he has sent us back in so that we could reach the people. Because a new system is coming, set up by the one that I'm voting for. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. When you get discouraged this season, not that you will, but why don't you remember this? And not think that I'm spiritualizing anything. It's not what I'm doing. I'm just saying that there is a higher truth and there is a higher reality that we are accountable to. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. I believe that. You believe that. That's the hope that we have. The enemy loses and we have victory. 
We have victory over the devil. We have victory over sickness, disease, illness, poverty, chaos, hate, violence. It's all going to be done away. All of it. Revelation says that. Revelation says that. As we close, can we pray for this? Can we pray for a fear of the Lord? Not scared of the Lord, but friends, can you admit with me that we need to take a step back and really truly be in awe of God? So many have answers and thoughts and opinions today, but you know what I'm wondering? As each day goes by, especially after we did our time of fasting and prayer, where is the desperation for God? If it's that bad, why are we not so desperate? And you know what I think will help us? is for for us to have a revelation of God where we become desperate for Him. That's what I want. That's not my sermonizing you. That's legitimately what I'm asking God for. I am asking Him for a new desperation, and I think that comes through a new revelation or a fresh revelation, an unveiling. Let's ask Him to pull back the curtain more than we have ever seen Him. Lord, we want to see You. Father, we thank You, and we pray in the mighty name of Jesus that You would pull back the curtain that we could see Jesus as he truly is in a more unfolding way, a more full way. God, we wanna see you. We wanna see you as you are. We wanna behold you in all of your glory. We want the fear of the Lord upon us. And now if you would stand to your feet, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna pray with you over the, some of the things in our world that are happening. We need, we need to do that. If the church is good at anything, it's prayer, amen? because we know we need God. And so pray with me. We've got fires. We've got all kinds of issues going on. Don't wait for me. Go ahead and pray. Let's press into prayer. Father, we thank you right now in Jesus' name that you are the great physician. You're the great healer. And so we pray healing over each person that is in this auditorium, each person that is watching us online. We ask for divine health and divine healing. We pray for those that are experiencing any effects of COVID-19. We pray that you would push back the virus. We pray that you would bring it to nothing. We thank you that you have authority over all things. We pray for that today. We pray also over all of these fires. California, Oregon, Montana, any other states for Washington, Eastern Washington, Sumner, Buckley, Bonnie Lake. Lord, anywhere these fires are, we just pray whether it's a wind whether it's rain, whatever it is, whether it's by the hands of man, whether it's by the moving of Almighty God, we ask, Lord, that you would extinguish the fires. We pray that they would be put out. We pray that lives would be spared. We pray that people would have food and shelter and water and that the damage that's done, God, that you would restore even what has transpired. We pray that the name of Jesus would be preached and the gospel of Jesus, the love of Jesus would be shown by the good deeds that Christians give towards those that are in need and those things that are happening. We pray for our firefighters, our first responders. We pray for those that are involved in bringing aid right now. We ask that you would protect them, comfort them, supply them today. We thank you, Lord, that that you're moving in a mighty way. We ask you to move, God. We thank you that you have solutions, you have answers. You can give wisdom to those that are in charge of the efforts and that are on the front line. We do pray for it today. We ask you to move mightily and we thank you for it. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. God's people said, amen. Amen.
Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.